Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. My name is Meredith Smith, and I'm coming from AC4 with a colleague, Alex James. Alex, do you want to tell a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm a master's student studying international security policy at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. I'm also a research assistant with Meredith, uh, working with Meredith at uh, AC4, and I'm currently studying uh, cyber conflict, and uh, I'm very interested in the issues of cybersecurity. So I'm very happy to be here. Great. Thank you, Alex. Wonderful to have you here with me. And we're both very excited to welcome to the show Professor Jason Healy. Jason Healy is a senior research scholar at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, SIPA. He specializes in conflict, cyber conflict, and in competition and cooperation in regards to cyber conflict. Prior to this, he was the founding director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative of the Atlantic Council, where he remains a senior fellow. He is editor of the first history of conflict in cyberspace, a fierce domain cyber conflict, 1986 to 2012, and co-authored the book Cybersecurity Policy Guidebook. Dr. Healy is currently teaching two classes at SIPA, The Dynamics of Cyber Power and Conflict, and also Policy Dilemmas in Cybersecurity. The second course, Policy Dilemmas in Cybersecurity, will be offered in the spring for any student listeners out there. I encourage you to check it out. And um, there's many other accomplishments and experiences I could name from Professor Healy, but I'm going to leave it brief so that we can jump into the topic. Um, but I also wanted to mention that he writes for a variety of publications, including the Christian Science Monitor, the Atlantic Council, the National Research Council, and a variety of academic journals. Um, for posing a question to you, Professor Healy, um, I wanted to mention, because as I've been looking into cyberspace and trying to get a handle on it, I found one quote from you in a recent interview that was very compelling for me. It said that you are interested in the top-level dynamics between states and how they're using this to coerce or influence or steal from each other, rather than what's happening inside the metal box on your desk. So just thinking about this and trying to get a handle on cyberspace and whether that means um, programming or where cyberspace is these days and what it means, um, could I ask you to start with just helping us understand how cyber conflict is commonly conceptualized and defined today? Sure thing, and we need to, and thanks for having me, and we need to break out the distinctions between, um, when we talk about cyberspace first, generally we're talking about the internet and connected IT. I mean, it can, it, people can get a little fancier with their definitions, but that's, that's largely what we're talking about. Um, not just the internet, you know, the, the network that happens to connect all of these devices, 
um, and carry all of this fabulous content. But we're trying to, trying to include all of that together. So if you look at this, there's, there's the field of cybersecurity. Well, the cybersecurity tends to get done by the computer scientists. So we have a fantastic set of faculty here uh, that does computer science, uh, like Steve Bellavin and Sal Stolfo at the computer science department. They will actually take your, can teach you to take your computer and make it more secure and make sure that the protocols, the future, future computers um, that are out there will be more secure. I'm in, the, I'm in CEPA, the International Affairs and Public Policy School. So we're looking at uh, two areas. First, uh, business and systemic cyber risk. Of, so how companies can protect themselves and how we can make sure that the future internet is at least as secure, as resilient, as awesome as the one that we have today. So, we, so I've been calling that a sustainable cyberspace. How do we know that when our kids are, are our age that they'll have an internet that's as awesome as the one that we have today? The, but where they're really diving into the issues of, that I think AC4 looks at uh, of conflict resolution is on the other half of my work that's looking at cyber conflict. Um, and, and here we mean that back and forth between predominantly but not only nation states. Nation states, sometimes crime groups, um, sometimes proxies for the states that are getting into this dust up online that are whether it's spying on each other, stealing stuff from one another, breaking stuff, changing information, um, largely for national security reasons. Um, I'll do a little bit on that in crime, but so much of the crime that, that happens is just to get a hold of your credit card number, your social security number, um, so that um, they can line their, line their pockets. Really fascinating problems, but I don't think lies towards the central of, for example, conflict resolution. Can you start also by telling us how you got into this? Yeah, so I, I, I came in from a political science background. I went to um, uh, a military academy where it was very science and tech-based, but I was still political science, Soviet area studies back, back in the day. And uh, I actually turned down a pilot training slot so I could compete for one in intelligence, and I uh, ended up in signals intelligence. So trying to listen to the other guy's communications, break his codes, and trying to protect, keep them from doing the same to us, uh, that brought me... Um, when I was 25 or so to the National Security Agency, I was in the Air Force at the time, uh, and then to the, um, to the Pentagon at Headquarters Air Force, where I helped set up the, what was the first Joint Cyber Command ever, back in 1998. There are 25 of us then, it's gone on to be U.S. Cyber Command, you know, which is many, many thousands today. Um, that, that background took me over to uh, Goldman Sachs, where I helped uh, set up some of their early cybersecurity. Um, to the White House, uh, 2003 to 2005. I rejoined Goldman Sachs out in Hong Kong. And uh, then probably about 2009, um, really decided to dive in more on the academic and, and think tank side. Um, I woke up one day and realized even though I'd been saying things, people were still wrong. And, uh, and I had like, better dive into trying to read more, I'm sorry, write more and, and um, speak more on the topic. Do you think now where does there's a field, a research um, field and theories that your work has, has pioneered in the cyberspace? Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily go as far as theories yet uh, and, and, or models. Um, we've got ideas. We've got doctrine. We have strategies. Um, we're busy. You know, my courses tend to, tend to focus on the dynamics rather than the theories. 
um, and especially trying to distinguish between those dynamics that are operative at the level of the ones and the zeros um, of you know what happens inside the box and over the wires and how that's different from what happens between nations and nation states and, and um, uh, multinational institutions and cross-border. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between the cyberspace for me with my computer or a programmer who's, who's making stuff versus on a national scale. Correct, and, and you know that sounds obvious when we talk about it, but a lot of what's happened particularly in the United States government, but also by those nations that have copied what we do, has been a, to start at that technical level and then build up your theories and dynamics and not realize that once you get past a certain point, you, you hit a tipping point where they're not really helpful anymore, where you need to look at the behavior of governments and work your way down, um, and you've got these two sets of truths, and we've treated it like it's a problem um, and we can give examples as we go along, but we've treated it as a problem that we're that that it doesn't work all the way through, um, and so that's what a lot of our work here at Columbia has been has been diving into. And President Obama and a number of others have uh, talked about cyberspace as being like like the Wild West. Uh, when you when you're looking at these theories and dynamics, how many of these can be translated from more conventional types of conflict into cyberspace, and to what extent do an entirely new set of theories? and dynamics need to be created and understood? Yeah, I've, I've come from a, a, a school that a school of thought that said that there's a lot more, that tra the traditional things that you're going to learn, at, for example, SEPA, carry you a lot farther into this space. This is my message when I'm talking to generals, when I'm talking to ambassadors, when I'm talking to elected officials, when I'm talking to government officials, that what you learned, your experience that got you to be a, a senior policymaker in those fields carries you a lot farther into this field than the technologists have been telling you. And, and I'll, I'll give an example of attribution, but I do want to come back to your point on Wild West because I, I think it's an interesting one. Um, for example, you hear in, in cybersecurity and cyber conflict, people will talk about the attribution problem. And by, by that we mean it's tough to know if you get an email from anyone, you can't. It's really difficult to know that the person actually sent that to you. Um, you know, it might have come from your mom, it might have come from your bank, but how do you really know that that email came from the bank? Um, and the same thing is true about cyber attacks. You know, if you're getting a cyber attack, it might have appeared that it came from China, but how do you really know that? And so we call that the attribution problem, and it's really allowed nations to, to really you know, stab their buddies, you know, stab their enemies under the table and say, it wasn't me. And, but a lot of that, we, we've taken that to be a universal truth of this cyber conflict. When a lot of cases, it's, it's, it turns out to be a very thin veil. When um, we had the Stuxnet attacks, which were a, a very, very sophisticated piece of uh, malicious software or malware against Iran, it destroyed Iranian centrifuges. And as soon as the technical community figured out exactly what this thing was targeting, as soon as they realized, oh my god, this is the only software in the world this weapon could possibly be targeting exists in Natanz, in the Iranian nuclear enrichment facility. They said, this is either have to have been Israel or the United States or both. 
and they got it exactly right. You know, it, it took another year for them to figure out that it was, uh, for, for us to get proof that it was, well, what we think is proof that it was the United States. But it's one of those things, if you've focused overly much on the technical, you, you got distracted when as soon as you figured out the purpose, because the most significant attacks don't take place in a vacuum. They take place usually during a geopolitical crisis. Given that that's the case, what are the mechanisms associated with cyber conflict at different levels of analysis? Well, it's certainly at the most technical level. Again, at the, at the way you're going to learn it at the, at the computer science school. You know, you're going to learn about packets. You're going to learn about the Internet. You're going to learn about the ways to stop this. You're going to learn the offense. How do you get into some other person's computer without them knowing it? How, how to change things so they don't recognize that things have been changed. That's really important. You know, here at Columbia, the, um, the, the law department's very involved, Matt Waxman. You know, and there you'll learn about, um, well, what's illegal or not. You know, if you're, if you're going to be a computer crime prosecutor, what's illegal or not. If you're a company and you get hacked, is it okay to try and hack back and get your data or to stop the attack against you? Um, under what circumstances is that or is that, is that not legal? At the law school, you'll learn about um, international humanitarian law. You know, what does the UN Charter and the Geneva Convention have to say about how you can get into a cyber conflict or, or how you must behave when you're in a cyber conflict? And at SIPA, we'll look at the dynamics of power and the dynamics of conflict. So actually, Columbia turns out to be very, to very, very strong in this area. But a lot of the reasons that uh, Dean Janow of SIPA brought me on was that we can try and bring all of these uh, better together. And as you're, uh, many of our listeners today are uh, pro colleagues and students studying fields that are uh, studying conflict but outside of cyberspace. Uh, what do you think the impact of conflicts within cyberspace are on, on the quote-unquote real world? So far, a lot less than you'd think. Uh, we had Admiral Rogers, who's the head of U.S. Cyber Command here at Columbia um, not long ago. And you know, he, was, he wasn't pounding the table, but he, he was certainly was pounding the table rhetorically on this is really bad. I mean, look at Sony. That was $300 million that they had to spend after what the North Koreans did, uh, did to them. And part of me said, you know, from the part of me that looks at what happened at business risk, I say, wow, three hundred million—that is, that—that's a lot of money. Um, but when you look at it as a national security incident, I mean, so it was three hundred million dollars. Nobody died, right? I mean, this is, this is so far, um, it can lead to personal catastrophes. Um, if it's your data that gets ta taken, if it, you got an OPM letter, if you were subject or your parents were subject to identity theft. Um, and that's really terrible. Um, but we still haven't seen anybody that's ever died from one of these attacks. I mean, it hasn't, but these attacks have not been strategically significant in any way that we normally use that term in the national security community. Um, the, the, there's been a tremendous theft of intellectual property from uh, the United States and other countries flowing into China. And, but, yeah, that's been bad. But again, as far as a conflict, that's, that's, that's bad, but it's, it's not necessarily what we think of. It could get a lot, lot worse. And, and to tie this back to Obama's talking about Wild West, as a matter of fact, I, I swear, I heard him, I was there when he said this out in San Francisco um, earlier this year, and that's where he said Wild, Wild West. And I was just thinking, all right, he's going, he's going Will Smith on us. I like that. <laughs> Um, but again, there's things that are worse than the Wild West. Um, 
and for example, Somalia. I mean, look, Somalia has been in a place where they had maybe merely they were Wild West, and now they've tipped into a place that's a, a, a very stable chaos. At any time, well-meaning people come by and try and reset it and put it back into a new stable state, there's always somebody that comes by with the technical and AK-47s and tears it back down again. And that's what I'm worried about overall, and that's why I, I think the role of conflict resolution in peace studies is so important here, of saying, how can we find this? How can we even snap U.S. policymakers out of where we are to start looking at these, these futures that are maybe significantly worse than we're facing now um, and try and get ourselves so that, like I said earlier, a, a more sustainable Internet? Yeah, um, you wrote a report uh, discussing possible different futures uh, of the internet, and you discuss like the Clockwork Orange internet and the Cyber Shangri-La. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of cooperation do you think is necessary, and do we need to see in and out of cyberspace to to reach that oh, the Shangri-La? You're really trying to bump up the class <laughs> participation grade here, aren't you? It's, uh, it's it's pretty impressive, I got to say. Yeah, so we looked at we were working, so it was. Uh, my other hat is a senior fellow at the Atlanta Council. We were working with Zurich Insurance Group. And they asked, a uh, they asked us a question, which was essentially boiled down for radio. We all see these terrible headlines of how, how bad cybersecurity is. You know, the OPM hack, Target hack. We, everybody knows someone that's data has been stolen. We just know it's getting worse year after year. But yet we're all completely interconnecting more and more. So even though we see these terrible headlines, we know that being ever more connected might be a bad idea. We're still doing it. How do we know that that's not all going to end in tears? How do we know that the economic value that we're getting from being connected outweighs the, the, the costs imposed by cybersecurity problems? And so we worked with uh, the University of Denver's Pardee Center uh, that does a lot of this economic modeling. And we came out and said, boy, we get a through 2030, we, ga we gain in global GDP $180 trillion. We lose in cybersecurity uh, costs $20 trillion in global G GDP through 2030, cumulative. So we're net $160 trillion. Yay! Uh, but then when we looked at these alternate futures, that was the base case. The alternate future said, well, cyber Shangri-La, what if everything goes great? Every time you open your Wired magazine and you see some awesome new technology that's coming down the pike, we fully get the benefits of it. Smart grid, connected homes, networked and in, in embedded medical devices. Um, uh, every time you see one of those uh, robots, driverless cars, we get most of the benefit out of that. Sec connecting securely to the internet becomes a real global human right. And we found that that was up somewhere between 30 and 40 trillion dollars of global GDP through 2030, so really significant. Um, it's, it's nowhere as important in human terms, but that's more than we save if, if we fix malaria, if we, if we cure AIDS. I mean, the, the numbers in that is actually less than that. Uh, of course, those are much much worse human tragedies than, than, than just connecting. I'm, I'm only talking about the pure GDP here, so I apologize for that. Um, but it's a really huge scale, 30 to $40 trillion in global GDP, um, with a lot of that benefits going to, going to the developing world. 
we then said we looked at uh, we called clockwork orange internet where instead of being a global human right a secure connection to the internet is a luxury good so instead of it being everyone in the world should be able to do this it just becomes like talking about how you were able to shop online becomes a status symbol and I'm gonna go back to Somalia I, I don't mean to pick on that country but it, I mean at some point the GDP just kind of hits bottom and it just there's it's difficult to get um, things any worse and to follow up on this Shangri-La idea and connect to some of the other uh, research that you've done on and writing on cooperation and uh, peace building um, I wonder if we could tie back to to that and thinking about how you see cyber playing into to peace building and cooperation. And um, I know there's um, sort of a lot that's been said on this podcast about long-term sustainable mm -hmm. peace building. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, this sustainable cyberspace, I'm wondering sort of if sustainable cyberspace is built out as you um, hypothesize mm -hmm. it, how does this roll over into uh, yeah. long-term? Because certainly we can look at some, and sustainable is, is uh, includes some parts of technology, it, inc it, it, includes, a whole, it includes a whole lot in there, um, as well as this part on conflict. And you can say, just like continuing to dig up and burn coal isn't sustainable, um, that some practices on the internet aren't sustainable. Um, that, for example, mass surveillance might not be uh, might not be a sustainable practice, and um and that helps me some when I'm making this case in Washington D.C. Sometimes that helps. Well, that helps me with certain communities. Uh, with other communities, it doesn't. Like for example, if you're trying to um, pitch this to a general, you can't say, "Well, worry about yes, but worry about privacy." Um, you know, these are that that just does not really enter in their trade-off space very well. The the folks at NSA it does relatively well. They'll say yes, we understand privacy, we understand civil liberties, and they really do. Uh, they know the Constitution, they know the law, and and but we're trying to get this idea past that. Of so with those folks, I make if we go this direction with non-sustainable practices, we end up with worse national security outcomes. And when I start just making that same translation, I'm saying the same things, but I translate into say, yes, but this leads us into worse national security outcomes if we do these kinds of things, because then we hurt our economy. People don't trust US uh, IT firms. They don't trust what we're trying to get done. They go their own direction. And that I found that help, that's helped relatively significantly. And if we're talking about uh, cooperation, uh, is there an element of, uh, is there the potential to create systems immunity, or is it really you just need to uh, outrun your friends to escape the bear? <laughs> uh, what what kind of potential is there for cooperation for collective security in cyberspace? Yeah, it's it's kind of tough. The because um, everybody is is worried about everybody else's practices and, and not so much about their own. And I'm, and I'm sure in peace studies and, and, and conflict resolution studies, you see this all the time. Uh, I, I got to be, oh boy, it was two years now. It was not maybe a few months after Snowden. 
and I was moderating this dinner discussion. And I've got former heads of NATO, I've got uh, members of the European Parliament, I've got heads of state. Um, it was at, at the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference. And, and we were talking about how we get past this transatlantic um, impasse that we were at o over data and, and the things that we learned from Snowden. And both sides at the end said, well, if we can have some reciprocity, if the other side is showing that they respect the other side um, in the way that the law works on that other side, we can get past this. And everyone pats themselves on the back and, uh, and they feel happy that they did this, this politicking. But it was so painful to watch because it was clear that both sides still didn't feel the other side lived up to their, to their norm. The Europeans were saying these Americans believe in mass surveillance and, and that doesn't fit in with our notions of privacy. That's bad. The Americans knew that the Europeans follow many of the same practices um, but don't need um, to go to a court to get it done. Um, they can just do it because one branch of government says, you know, well, let's do this program. Um, and uh, they never have to go to a court and get a warrant and try and prove that. And, and the U.S. side is very proud of that. And so it was, it was so painful to watch because you think you're watching this conflict resolution. Mm. And, and all we did was agree and, and we're really talking past each other on that. Now, the last year has been really interesting. With, um, we had been making great progress last year with Russia. Um, uh, I would say between, oh, call it 2011 up, th up through uh, Ukraine. We had great progress, uh, or good project pro progress with Russia. That's largely fallen apart. Um, Putin had been meeting with Obama. We had a president's working group. The two sides were talking with one another. And, and more important, we had a history of, of this. Many of the same people involved on both sides had come from the arms control negotiations. You know, they'd done INF, they'd done START. They knew one another. We know the process. They've got a National Security Council. We've got a National Security Council. It worked well. And uh, now that's fallen apart. The Chinese have been, have been interesting lately, though. I wanted to talk about this, this fact that the norms of cybersecurity and conflict are still in their infancy. And you've generated the book yep. on cyberspace security policy, the mm -hmm. guidebook. But it's still very much a, a nascent uh, field, so to speak, and, and policies are not very much in place. But I'm wondering, there's been a recent push to discourage cyber espionage for economic gain, as yeah. you were hinting at. And uh, yeah, how do you expect these norms to evolve in the coming years? Yeah, it's been really fascinating in the, in the last... At the beginning of this year, there, were, there weren't really any accepted global norms on cyber conflict or espionage and what you ought to do. Um, the, um, there had been some that had been coming out from some of the uh, multinational organizations um, that had done, uh, that had started on it. But again, that, that's being done by, by the multinationals, not, not necessarily by the nations themselves. Uh, in April, Secretary Kerry came out with, here's the five that the United States um, came up with. You know, you shouldn't do commercial espionage, espionage for commercial reasons. You, you shouldn't attack the other guys uh, cyber defenders, that they, they shouldn't be seen a legitimate target, let, let defenders do their thing, um, and things like that. Oh, don't attack critical infrastructure, try and, don't try and take down someone else's power grid. Um, and these are all during peacetime. Like the, these don't necessarily apply during wartime, because of course the U.S. is going to try and take down someone's power grid. That's a, that's a legitimate military target. Um, and so we came out with these in April, and 
you were the only ones that had really come out and, and done, or any, major, any of the major cyber powers that had done this. And that was April, so at the beginning of this year, we had none. Within a few months, there's a UN group of government experts that had agreed to three of the five, not the, but well, not the one on commercial espionage. Um, then when, uh, apparently in, the, in response to the threat of U.S. sanctions, President Xi Jinping put it on the table, and he and President Obama said commercial espionage um, uh, should be forbidden. You know, we, we don't support it. It shouldn't be a valid... It shouldn't be a valid use. And again, this is, for those listeners that might not know it, President Obama in the Sunnyland Summit, what was that, a year and a half ago, two years ago, he said this, is at, this issue of commercial espionage is at the heart of the relationship right now. We have to solve this. He didn't put human rights. He didn't put the economy. He said solving this issue of cyber espionage for commercial purposes is at the center. And so to have uh, uh, Xi Jinping come and say, yeah, okay, we won't do it, um, was, was kind of astounding to a lot of us. Now, we're still not sure if they've held off on it or not, um, but then uh, she made similar promises to the British and to the Germans, and then even the G20 came out and said that we shouldn't do commercial espionage. So, uh, again, we're still seeing if people are living up to the norms that they, that they espouse, but as you know, I, you know, in peace and conflict resolution studies, I'm sure, at least now we've got uh, these commitments. But where we can really use your help is that I have trouble with my colleagues that all say, well, the Chinese aren't living up to it. They'll never live up to it. Um, there's no reason for us to restrain anything that we do because we don't do commercial espionage, so therefore everything we do must be okay. Um, and so I think coming in and, and having what has been done on the peace and conflict, conflict resolution studies is to say, all right, how can we build this? How can we get past this this built-in resistance of just assuming the other guy, guy is going to cheat. Um, what can we learn from other times we've been in this place and other domains to help us get nurse our way through this, this very vulnerable moment? Thank you for that example, too. Alex, did you have any other question with the... I think one thing that <clears throat> might also be interesting to talk about, we've talked a lot about potential cooperation and conflict uh, between states, mm -hmm. uh, what do you think the potential is for public-private partnerships, and what role do you think the private se private sector should ideally play in in uh, conflicts in cyberspace? Yeah, it's a it's it's a great point um, because a lot of the way that the that the government folks get into this is they're either coming in uh, like I did from the military, or they're coming in from the FBI, or they're coming in from uh, CIA or NSA. And in all of those fields, crime, espionage, warfare, there's no role for the private sector, right? I mean, if, if, you're, a, if you're a military professional, then, then the civilians should get out of the war zone, right? I mean, they're, if, if they pick up a weapon, then they're a legitimate target. They're, it's levy on mass. You know, if you're an FBI person, then you're either, and you're not another law enforcement person, then either you're a potential victim or a potential perpetrator, right? They, d they just don't have this understanding of how it works in the internet where they think they see for example Fort Meade of US Cyber Command as being the heart of American cyber power rather where where most of us would see it which would be Silicon Valley <laughs> right I mean the companies that are that are building all of this gear 
Um, but think, I mean, if you had, if Cisco and Microsoft and AT&T and Deutsche Telekom and British Telekom said, you know what, there's not going to be a cyber war. You know, you governments want to do this, but we're not going to collectively not going to allow it to happen. Um, you know, they've got a huge role to play in this. Microsoft has a great team on this. They've even come out and published their own norms, um, almost like a government, and saying, here's what we think the international norms ought to be. We don't think that you all government should go around and weaponize our product, hmm. or especially not undermining the trust, the underlying trust mechanisms by which the internet is run. And all governments have done that, including the US. To go after the Iranian centrifuges, one of the programs went after Windows Update. And for those of you that have a window, um, a Microsoft computer, Windows Update is how they make sure that everybody, the hundreds of millions of computers, even the pirated computers, are safe with patches so that you're not open to hackers. And as part of that, the US government appears to have subverted part of that process so that they could get their bugs into the Iranian system. That's just, a, like, if you care about the long-range future viability of the internet, the sustainability of it, that's one of those things that you might want to show restraint on, especially if you're as, so dependent on the internet for your economy as we are. It's, I hear how important this uh, cyberspace is not only for uh, future conflict resolution scholars and practitioners, but it sounds like even for citizens. And yeah. it, um, it sounds like Columbia has a role to uh, play in this for the future, um, also where you envision SIPA and Columbia. Yeah, the, so again, Columbia is well, is well positioned on this. Uh, we've got several uh, strong faculty here, so several strong departments. Uh, and that are now really starting to come together. And as I've been talking to colleagues at some of the other Ivies or in the in the main West you know Bay Area schools, um, I think we I think we might be a little bit ahead of them on 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 getting ourselves together on this. Um, we're not we're not the best at it, but I think we're we're uh, we're m moving ahead a lot more rapidly than they are, and and particularly pushed by uh, Dean Jay now and 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 the other deans across the school. So a lot, when I'm talking to SEPA students or if I'm talking to peace studies or, or conflict resolution study students, um, there are a great number of jobs out there. Cyber is a very hot field. It's great to have it on your resume. Um, but we're all coming in from, we've got a lot of strengths compared to people that are coming in from other, uh, from other academic disciplines. But we've got some big vulnerabilities. And the big vulnerabilities is that too often when we look at the computer, we don't get the magic of what's happening behind it. We don't understand the software, the networks, the hardware. Um, so I do, uh, we're trying to include that more into our, our, our teaching at SIPA, just so that people can, get, can start, the less you see it as magic and you start to understand some of it, um, it really increases not just your understanding, but your hireability. Do you see that? the this hard um, networking part of it? At least, I mean, on the SEPA side, again, it helps your hireability. It helps you get a deeper understanding if you can at least understand it. I mean, for example, if you're doing nuclear nonproliferation, it helps if you at least understand fission and fusion and U-235 versus U-238 and um, and some of those things. It's it's It at least helps you so that you've got some BS filters in place. 
and and obviously the technical stuff on cyber there's more to it than um, uh, than that but at least so we're at least trying to get it into some of the SIPA classes I hope to have a, a SIPA class that's just on the technical side um, next academic year so that we can focus on that the entire class rather than having to you know shuffle it into the first couple of classes um, but when you look at it, it it's not a hard requirement but again it helps so a lot of the places that would be looking at people that might be um, listening to the show, uh, if you're involved in, if you're an area studies person, there are a lot of companies that do cyber threat intelligence. Um, places like CrowdStrike, FireEye, iSight, iDefense, um, and they are there to say, all right, let's let's have people that understand Russia, that understand Iran, that understand. Um, that maybe speak Russian, that um, have spent time in Taiwan and understand China, and they can help us understand what's happening in the hacking community. They can help us understand what um, the nation-state groups there are doing, um, and they're doing fantastic, really fun, cutting-edge stuff. Um, one of my buddies, James Movenna at Defense Group Inc., he does fantastic work. Bring in ninja linguists as, as he talks about it. You know, folks that deeply understand um, Chinese, Farsi, Russian. Um, uh, to, to help really solve, solve hard problems. The, uh, certainly there's a lot of government that, that, hi that hires, um, DHS, um, uh, CIA, NSA, uh, and other places. Um, Department of Commerce has a great section, and they need people that understand international affairs um, in particular. Um, and I also wanted to, to add in, there's a, um, great set of folks that are also looking to hire um, on the corporate side that need, for example, government relations people, people that uh, maybe studied public policy. They don't necessarily have to be a cyber expert, but they can understand how public policy happens. And across that range of jobs, when I, when I, when I talk to my colleagues about what they're looking for, um, they might mention, yeah, knowing the tech is good. They might mention having an area specialty. It's always good to have those under your belt. What they always hit on again and again is ability to write coherently, shortly, you know, and that you know, concisely, really tight writing, mm. um, and, and an a analytical ability. If you can prove yourself on those two, oh, and I'd also emphasize um, just having your act together um, and just being able, because a lot of times in entry level, you might not be doing the high-end research. You might just be organizing events, for example, if you're at a think tank. And there, having, having the skills to write and analyze are going to be really important. But if you don't have your act together, then, then, then you're not going to succeed. And just one last, when it, when it comes on the writing side, um, one of my colleagues that he's actually now at a Columbia PhD program, Peter Rohde, in the history department, he had been over at the Pentagon in, in a great position. And he said when they were taking memos up, written memos advocating a different policy, to the leadership, you know, up to even to the Secretary of Defense. They said their bosses would look at those memos for an average of 10 to 30 seconds. So it really says, good, you might be a great writer for 15 pages, but do you have what it takes to write a memo in one or two pages that a really impatient, busy, but incredibly smart person can look at and get what you're trying to say in 10 to 30 seconds? So it's, it's, something, it's something for all of us to shoot for. <laughs> Definitely, and some very practical, wise advice for all um, current job seekers and uh, young professionals. And I think 
um, especially for this field when you're talking about conflicts that you're saying, you know, as you mentioned before, they don't exist in a vacuum. So if you're trying to brief somebody on something, it's very challenging to succinctly give a, a suggestion. And um, so one um, final question, I think, mm -hmm. um, that I would love to, to hear your thoughts on is just in your own work, um, looking ahead, what um, current questions you feel like aren't being asked about mm -hmm. cyberspace? Great. The, we're, a lot of what I'm going to be looking at over the, over the next year, uh, hopefully getting ready for the next book, is on these dynamics of cyber conflict and trying to reconcile um, what's true at the technical level versus what's true at the, at the, um, at the larger nation state or global level. Um, trying to find at what, where nations might want to show restraint, you know, what place, even if it might be in their narrow national security interest, it makes more sense to forgo doing something. Um, you, might, you might roll that into what you, to deterrence. Um, I don't like to use that word necessary for it because that leads you into one thing. Um, and I'm afraid, and this ties completely into conflict resolution and peace studies, is a lot of my colleagues in Washington, D.C., and my military and, and intelligence co uh, colleagues see this on a cyber conflict on a transactional basis. We want to do X to the other guys. They want to do Y to us. Let's make sure we can do X and let's try and stop them from Y. Rather than looking at these larger, the larger dynamics. And so, um, and especially the larger escalatory dynamics. So I think that cyberspace is probably the most escalatory kind of conflict, the most escalatory domain we've ever come across. Uh, one of our colleagues um, at, at Columbia, uh, Bob Jervis in the International Security Program, um, said he wrote in 1978 that a situation is doubly dangerous if it is offense dominant and you can't distinguish offense from defense. Because he says, then you get in a security dilemma. Each side is going to escalate because they're worried about what the other guy does. The other guy is going to look at that and say, look at what they're doing. You know, hey, you just bought a shotgun. I have to buy a machine gun. You say you just bought a machine gun. You have to buy a tank. And we're going to keep and we're going to keep doing this. And both of those th things are true of cyber conflict. It's offense dominant. You can't distinguish easily offense from defense. But we've got a lot of else stacked against us as well, that you can't distinguish offense, defense, and espionage in a lot of cases that you've got really low barriers of entry. So it's unlike nuclear warfare, it's not just nation states that play, you've got a, a tremendous range of actors that can play. And also because it's difficult to know who really is doing it to you on the other side, nations have decided that they can already be throwing punches even when they're nominally at peace. So we've got all of these, so we really wanna come in and take a look at this and say we've got all these escalatory dangers. And so we, especially nations like the United States that are so dependent, we have to show extraordinary caution when we're going to throw punches. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Professor Healy. It's been a real honor to have you on the show, and this is a fascinating topic. I wish we could keep talking about it, but we're going to have to cut it off here. And um, thank you also, Alex, for coming on today and joining me as a host. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be part of this conversation. I think it's really fascinating work. Great. Thank you, Meredith. And just wanted to give uh, one mention to an opportunity to get 
involved in cyberspace work. Professor Healy is uh, leading some of the work with the student cyber policy competition that will be happening in March 2016 at the American University. And it's a, a global event that allows students to compete for the best national security policy on a, a current event. And so please visit our website for more information on that and also some links to current writing from Professor Healy. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway. <laughs> <laughs>